0: Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, Curtis Chang, the author of the new book, The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self, joins psychiatrist Kurt Thompson to discuss the challenge of anxiety, as well as the invitation it presents for spiritual growth. Anxiety is a signal we're supposed to pay
1: attention to. And one of the ways we pay attention to anything is by naming something. It's like, oh, that's what that is. That's the signal. That's what, and so the problem when we make anxiety a problem to go away is rather than actually facing it and naming it, if we try to just suppress it or make it go away, it actually grows louder. And then it does this weird thing where it actually becomes us, it enters us, or we're tempted to to fuse with anxiety because we're not actually looking at it and naming it and recognizing it as a phenomenon that is, somewhat in us, but it's also not exactly us. Uh, It
0: just, we we become absorbed with it. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from May of this year. You can find the full video of that conversation along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. It was in
2: 1947, that W.H. Auden wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning long poem, The Age of Anxiety, a work that proved to be prophetic as well as poetic. Today, anxiety is the most widespread mental illness in the United States. And even as we speak, it's significantly increasing. In 2018, before the pandemic, Over 60% of American college students reported feeling overwhelming anxiety at various times. And other studies have shown that both depression and anxiety have risen by almost a third globally since the pandemic started. Other studies indicate that nearly a third of Americans will experience anxiety at some point in their lives. And 20% of our neighbors are doing so even now. For those suffering from the stresses and distortions of anxiety, everyday life can be difficult and hope can seem elusive. For people of faith who have tried and failed to pray away their burdens or lay them down, there may also be an added sense of spiritual failure as well. But our guest today will argue that for all of its challenges and difficulties, anxiety also presents an opportunity for growth grace, and wisdom. In the words of one of our guests, it is one of the most powerful opportunities for transformation we will ever encounter. And the responding constructively opens the door not only to improved mental health, but also to spiritual growth. It's a provocative claim and a hopeful summons. And to help us unpack and explore it, I'm delighted to introduce two expert and insightful guests Curtis Cheng and Kurt Thompson. Curtis Cheng is a nonprofit leader, consultant, and professor who serves as the executive director of the faith-based nonprofit group Redeeming Babel, as well as the co-founder and CEO of Consulting Within Reach, a firm serving nonprofits and government agencies. In addition, he teaches strategic planning at American University School of International Service, is a consulting professor at Duke Divinity School, a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary, and the former senior pastor of the Evangelical Covenant Church in San Jose, California, as well as the author of the brand new, not yet out, coming out on May 16th book, The Anxiety Opportunity, which we've invited him here today to discuss joining him is Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt is a psychiatrist in private practice and the host of the Being Known podcast, which explores the connection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. He is, I am very proud to say, a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum, as well as a sought-after speaker and consultant. We figured out today that Kurt has actually appeared more on our online conversations than any other guest, so Kurt, it's great to have you back. Uh, And he's also the author of several excellent books, including The Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame, and his most recent work, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. Curtis and Kurt, welcome. Great to have you here.
3: Thank you. It's great great to be be back. Yeah, Yeah, it's great to be back.
2: So Curtis, I want to start with you. One of the things that I have found in the course of even just doing these online conversations is that in every book, there is not only a story within it, there is a story behind it. And so I wanted to ask you, what led you to write The Anxiety Opportunity?
1: Oh, thanks, Cherie, for asking that question. And I feel like this is a book that I was uh, being prepared by God and by life to write, um, because one of the things that is true about me that many people don't know is that I am deeply anxious uh, and I've been anxious for all of my life. Uh, I grew up in the 70s and I grew up as a in in the Chinese American community and I grew up as an evangelical. so those three things if I had just one of those three things um they would have not prepared me to identify and help me realize that I, that I was anxious. I think all three of those sort of communities uh, at least you know back then uh, didn't recognize anxiety, especially childhood anxiety. Uh, mm. you put all three of those together and there was almost no chance that my childhood anxiety would have been recognized and named in any uh, recognizable way. So I grew up uh, anxious, but not even knowing it and and other people not knowing it, but really actually developing what some psychologists call highly functional anxiety, where anxiety is present and is actually driving a lot of very functional behaviors, like staying on top of things, planning, anticipating, and so forth. And that led to a fairly successful life. Uh, But even... Highly functioning anxiety, especially when it is not named and recognized and responded to uh, healthily, can become dysfunctional anxiety. And that explains one of the uh, items that you read in my bio, uh, which was you said former pastor of an evangelical covenant church. So the reason why there's a former attached to that title is because in my 40s, my highly functional anxiety under the pressures and stresses of being a pastor became highly dysfunctional. And I ended up having a catastrophic breakdown of including two weeks where I did not sleep at all because at least consciously because of anxiety. And that led to, that's why that's the former there on um, the pastor. And so I know anxiety from the inside out from all of my life. And if there's anybody that would, I think, have some ability to say, yeah, anxiety is a horrible problem. We should try to make it go away. I think I have at least some claim to to make that that point. And yet the point of my book is to say that anxiety is not just a problem. It is, as the book's title says, it is an opportunity. That's why I wrote it as the anxiety opportunity and that the deeply Christian response to anxiety is one of deep hope. Because anxiety isn't just a problem. it is has pro- certainly problematic aspects to it. But it isn't just a problem. It is also an opportunity for profound growth.
2: You know, of course, anxiety manifests itself differently in different people. And so kind of as we start off just sort of laying the groundwork to know even what we're talking about, Kurt, I'd love to hear from you as a, a practicing psychiatrist. Uh, what is anxiety? And one of the things I have noticed in really both of your books is a link be, between anxiety and shame. And so would be interested in your thoughts on how these two disparate things are, are linked as well.
3: Well, I, I, one thing that really strikes me about, just right out of the gate of our conversation, is we, we tend to think that, oh, there are people in the world who are anxious and people in the world who are not. I mean, I think if you're a human, you're anxious. The question is not, am I anxious? The question is, what do I do with my anxiety in any way, shape or form? Because fundamentally, we, I, I would say that anxiety, first of all, is an embodied experience. We don't know that we're anxious apart from our physical experience of it. Now, we might think it's oh, it's just in my mind, like my cognitive thinking, but my level of distress that accompanies this thing that I call anxiety is something that I only experience in my physicality, even if only in very, very minor ways. Whether it's my, you know, up, uptick in my heart rate or it's a tension in my face that I often don't even know that I carry with me and so forth and so on. So to be human is to be anxious. I think the second thing is to recognize and this gets to Curtis's point about it being an opportunity anxiety. We, we often claim that it is a problem uh, when I'm talking with patients. I describe anxiety as simply being a signal. If I'm uh, cooking bacon in the kitchen and the smoke detector goes off, which it frequently does, if Kurt is cooking bacon in the kitchen, I don't like it. I don't I like what well, just plus please stop. I don't need your yapping. I'm just cooking bacon. It's not it's not on fire. I'm just cooking bacon. I don't like it, but it is actually doing its job. And so when we are anxious, what we're really saying when people think like my brain isn't working well, because I'm, I'm this anxious, I want to say, actually, your brain is doing exactly what it should be doing under the circumstances in which it finds itself the question is are you aware of the circumstances (laughs) under which you're living and so from a neurobiological standpoint it is this sense that it's a signal it's a distress signal, and then I would say where I where I think you know psychiatry in the modern West doesn't really take this take this into consideration, um, and this is where anthropology I think plays a huge role, and I and I think that when you look at the second page of the Bible and you read that this first comment that it's not good for the man to be alone, that ultimately anxiety is a signal that tells that is that is portending a catastrophic departure of connection with human beings. Now I'm not thinking this, you know, consciously, so forth. But that's what my body, that's what my, that's what I'm sensing. That there's something going on here, the end point of which is going to be I'm going to be cut off, and that sense of cut, being cut off is this is the signal that's telling me I I really I, I want to do something that's you know getting me back connected to people. Where shame plays a role is it's its unique, it it it's 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 a unique. Uh, physiologic response. It's a unique cognitive response. It's a unique, like emotionally felt response that is related to anxiety. And in some respects we might say is anxiety's like nuclear option for us in terms of the particular felt sense of isolation, me turning away from myself, turning away from you without the ability to reverse that process. And so both interpersonally as well as neurophysiologically, it's a signal that I would say is built into the system. And when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. He's not saying, turn your brain off. He's saying, when the anxiety comes, this is what you're called to do. It's the signal, it's the opportunity that I think that Curtis is talking about.
2: You know, it's so interesting to think about it as a signal. And of course that sort of begs the question that, what is going on and why is anxiety increasing so much you're probably i mean social psychologist jonathan Haidt essentially said that when it comes to gen z this is the most anxious and depressed generation in history uh you know anxiety and depression particularly among teen girls has um just significantly increased since since 2012. why does if, if anxiety is a signal why is it seems to be increasing so rapidly
1: Yeah, I can jump on that. I'd love to hear Kurt's thoughts on that. I would say there's two ways to answer that question. And I liken it to answering the question, why did Katrina happen? Right? When you ask the question, why did the disaster of Katrina happen? You can answer it on two levels. You can answer it on, why did the storm build up as powerfully as it did? And there's all sorts of high-level complex atmospheric and climactic uh, sort of factors that go in there. And similarly with anxiety, I think there are a lot of long-term structural, societal factors in play that we can explore from the rise of smartphones, to the rise of deep loneliness and social disconnection to go get to Kurt's point about the connection between anxiety and shame. So there's, there's a lot of high level structural factors. There's also another way you can answer the Katrina question, which is why did the levees break? Why did the structures that we set up to prevent huge upsurges of atmospheric anxiety, why did they not hold the line? And that's really what my book is about, because what I'm trying to argue and show in my book is that the ways that we have constructed, especially in the Christian church, our understandings, our conceptual understandings and our pastoral practices and personal practices, the levies that we have tried to erect conceptually and in practice have actually been deeply, deeply flawed. And that this upsurge is exposing the fact of their deep flaws. And that's one of the reasons why this upsurge of anxiety all around us is flooding into our lives with such damaging consequences. And at the heart of that structural flaw is this belief that anxiety is just... Is a problem that we are supposed to make go away. That it isn't a normal human condition, the way that uh, Kurt just described, but that it's actually a problem we have to push away. And I, you know, liken it, to, and I sort of categorize uh, that there's really two main ways that Christians are tempted to make anxiety something that we make go away, a problem we make go away. One is we uh, are taught to either pray it away, or secondly, we prescribe it away. So the pray it away. Uh, avoidance is that we're supposed to pray have faith uh, that that categorizes anxiety as a sin in the extreme or as a lack of faith or as a character flaw. So it's a problem. we have to pray it away, make it go away. or we for in other Christian cultures uh, maybe they don't go to that route, but they will just say, well it's a it's it's purely a secular mental health problem that we outsource to secular mental health and we have it have them prescribe it away. Either through medication or through therapy. Now, let me be clear: I am a believer in medication and in therapy. I myself have benefited from both of those things. But I think as Kurt will will agree that secular mental health in the West uh, has a strong tendency to pathologize anxiety into a mental health problem that they're supposed to just try to make go away. And it isn't really well set up. It's not. It's it's not set up from its own fundamental origins to treat it in the way that I think the I believe the Bible. And Jesus' own life invites us to treat it, which is not as a problem to make go away, but precisely as a signal, a signal, an invitation, what I call an opportunity, an invitation to walk through anxiety, to actually experience it in the way that actually we were designed to by God for spiritual growth in Jesus, where we actually meet Jesus more deeply, precisely in our anxiety. It's not that we have to make anxiety go away and then finally, then we're like qualified to somehow be with Jesus. It's that actually in our experience of anxiety, that's where we encounter Jesus most deeply and encounter our, the truths about ourselves most deeply.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or did you have anything to add
3: to that? Well, I, I just think, you know, to, to Jonathan Haidt's point, when we talk about this particular generation, Gen Z being more anxious and depressed, I, I, there, there is a sense in which we would say, oh, this shouldn't actually surprise anybody. In that we are kind of, we're watching culture develop in a particular way, such that the very way we then respond to anxiety by, for instance, pathologizing it, or praying it away both of those tend to be ways in which we are actually avoiding the signal we're not really paying much attention to the signal now this is different than what happens when the signal is so strong that I absolutely can't function and therefore we're going to intervene with some kind of medical intervention this happens with patients of mine all the time but what we're really saying to them in that instance is that what we really we really want to do is to provide your neurological system with a support until we can really help you begin to see that this is a signal that's trying to tell us something about your life and part of the challenge is that the way we have conceptualized and then approached our anxiety culturally and by cultural i mean in the church in the clinical community in culture in general the very ways that we approach actually reinforce the anxiety actually strengthen the signal that we then think is still the problem getting bigger because we still think it's a problem instead of, so I'm like, why do I have now? Why is the smoke signal in my, in my bacon cooking kitchen louder? When what I'm trying to do is just not pay attention to, I'm trying to get rid of the signal instead of getting, and of start asking the question, Oh, what's actually happening in the story. What's happening with my body to what, in what ways am I actually cut off? Have I stopped paying attention to Genesis 1.18? And then in my attempt to respond to my distress about being alone, I do things that make me even more alone. And so I think to Curtis's point in his his beautiful book, there is this way in which we're even thinking about the nature of it. Before we even get to what are we going to do, we have to pause and just be aware that I'm telling the story about it in a way that is not actually consistent with the real world. And so until I'm willing to pause and reconsider that, as Curtis's book invites us to do, it's gonna be difficult because otherwise I'm just gonna continue to wanna repeat what I've always been doing and waiting for my brain to get to an even louder signal.
2: Yeah, Curtis, one of the things I was uh, really intrigued by in your book is you talked about the vital importance of naming you know, of naming the voices in your head, the stress responses in your body, even the anxiety in different relationships as a way of helping to differentiate uh, one's anxiety from one's identity. And one of the things I notice a, a theme that could be inferred from your book as well as from yours, Kurt, is that the role that sort of deception and deflection can both play, you know, in our emotional and, and mental struggles that we're either prone to kind of fuse our I- identity with our anxiety, which you kind of, I think, likened to Stockholm syndrome or to deflect it, which has actually been linked to the rise in conspiracy thinking, which I thought was just fascinating. So I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about, about why naming anxiety is so important and how one begins that process of differentiating and naming our anxiety as apart from our either our core identity or even external reality.
1: Well, this gets to how tricky anxiety really is as a as a uh, thing that we deal with in our lives. Because to picking up Kurt's point, he's exactly right that anxiety is a signal we're supposed to pay attention to. And one of the ways we pay attention to anything is by naming something. It's like, oh, that's what that is. That's the signal. That's what. And so, the problem when we make anxiety a problem to go away is, rather than actually facing it and naming it, if we try to just suppress it or make it go away, it actually grows louder. And then it does this weird thing, where it actually becomes us. It enters us, or we're tempted to to fuse with anxiety because we're not actually looking at it and naming it and recognizing it as a phenomenon that is. somewhat in us, but it's also not exactly us. Uh, It just, we we become absorbed with it. And this is where we, this is the fusion that I'm talking about. So one of the ways that we actually establish some ability to both recognize it, but not fuse with it, not get completely captured and hijacked by it is by actually looking at it and naming it. And and for Mm -hmm. me, I Mm -hmm. actually... What's been really helpful that I write about my book is I actually name my anxious thoughts. I, mm-hmm. I give it a name because it's a way for me to establish some rec- direct recognition, some understanding, and also some differentiation so that I don't mm-hmm. fall prey to this hidden hijack that happens. And I really love Kurt's callback to Genesis in thinking about the basic human condition, because what is, what, what is the first human command that God gives us? It's to name the beasts. It's to name the animals. And it's the way that we differentiate. I am not a beast, and I mm-hmm. actually have some mm-hmm. authority over the beast. And so anxiety is like a mental beast, right? That we actually, it's, it, we are encouraged by God to actually give names. to. So I, in my book, I write about, I i have a radio station in my head that I call <laughs> K-fear. It's the radio. So it's a way for me to recognize, oh, I'm playing that station. I'm playing my anxious mm-hmm. thoughts on mm-hmm. And once I actually like tune in, not become it, but tune in kind of from an observer, a listener standpoint, I I discover all sorts of kind of insightful things. Like, oh, actually, my anxiety, which seems so overwhelmingly and complex, actually plays kind of the same song over and over again, for instance. And once I can recognize that song, I could start paying attention. Oh, this is what this this song is. That's what that signal, what that radio signal is trying to tell me. So. I actually, th- you know, I give all, all sorts of different names to the station, to the songs that that my anxiety plays. And, and it's it's a way for me to recognize, yep, I'm anxious. I'm not trying to make it go away. I'm not trying to pretend it's it's not there, but I actually have some authority as well. I can pay attention. I can pay less attention. I can turn the volume up, turn the volume down. I can't make it go away entirely because it just is a station in my head. It, it's what, what it means to be human but I am not subject to it. I actually have some authority over it.
3: Yeah. And I I think I think to that point, even uh, Curtis, you're, you're right when when our anxiety is not seen as a signal that we then turn toward and want to have a relationship with. And then it becomes part of us and we become fused with it. It leaves us in this place where I am my anxiety. I'm by myself. Once again, it's going back to this. We're replaying Genesis 118 over and over and over again. You know th- they the work of richard schwartz and internal family systems some of our listeners may be familiar with this has been a really helpful model in giving us the opportunity to consider that oh we have different parts of us i have the part of me that is a husband a part of me that's a father a part of me that is a friend a part of me that uh, different th- the angry part of me the anxious part of me these different parts such that when i'm anxious it could be that i like i think i'm anxious because i think you're actually you have more anxiety than I do. And I wanna say that I think I'm more anxious than you are. I wanna compete (laughs) here. We could have a contest. (laughs) Right, right, I see, but I'm anxious about that. But the sense that like, I I can think that I am anxious when what I wanna say is there is a part of me that is anxious and there is a part of me that is anxious about particular things. But as long as I am left alone with that, I have a very difficult time differentiating my anxiety part from other parts of me. And this is why our connection to other people is so critical, whereby which they can be curious with me about this and give me some distance between this, the signal that's going off in my kitchen, such that I am not the signal. Oh, it's the signal that is in my kitchen, but sometimes it's so overwhelming that I need someone else to help me look together at this signal and their very presence can reduce my anxiety enough to then look at it so that I can see it for what it really is rather than me thinking that is it the problem that is the pathology that somehow needs to be treated and gotten rid of as Curtis has been so rightly emphasizing
2: you know that's that's so intriguing and that one of the things that uh, you both have written about is not just in terms of like attention and movement, but um, the role that embodiment plays, just, you know, even moving our body, much less moving towards other people that, um, and and Kermit, we can start with you. Is this largely because it shifts our attention or is there something also just in terms of being more, you know, present, moving or relational that has such an effect on anxiety?
3: when we say that an anxiety begins as an embodied experience and it and 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 people would different researchers would differentiate between anxiety and fear for example but there's there's a there's a hair difference between these things and i can be anxious about a range of different things some of which feel overwhelming some of which are not that overwhelming when it gets to the point where it is overwhelming it really has crossed into a point where i can feel paralyzed i feel like i'm not moving and so the only way out is to move rather dramatically. And so I avoid, I, I, I move by like, like I don't pay any attention to the anxiety. I'm just gonna bury it. I'm just gonna pretend it's not there. Or I move with any number of my different addicting, idolatrous activities, or I become paralyzed and overwhelmed by it. But again, if someone says, I mean, this happens all the time when we're in therapy and like you, you think of therapy as like, oh, you go into an office and you sit down. And then, but we we are frequently up on our feet doing things. We are moving in the office, and of course, somebody's like, "What do I like? Why are we standing? Why are we marching in your office, Kurt? Why are we marching? This is weird." I'm like, "Okay, well, let's let's let's, let's, let's march in our weirdness for a little longer." And then when they said, and now, I, "And now I want you to tell me, what has become of your distress? What has become of your anxiety? Locate it now." And they recognize that movement changes, not just my attention, but it changes what I am doing with my body in the presence of someone else who is allowing my brain to know that it is now no longer alone with this so that I can begin to, as Curtis says, again, name that I am anxious and then further name what is the story that I'm telling that is behind it.
2: You know, Curtis. Going back to something you've talked about a little bit earlier, just the the spiritual opportunity that anxiety provides, and you've talked a little bit about what that means for the people suffering from anxiety. But of course, when someone suffers from anxiety, it's usually not just they who suffer, but also their their loved ones, sometimes their colleagues and the like. And would be interested in what you would say to those who live, love, or work with those struggling with anxiety and what if any, what, if anything you see is the the anxiety opportunity for them as well.
1: Yeah, well, I write about this in the book and I think the audience I most wanna to speak to are the parents of anxious children. The CDC just recently re- released uh, reports that show 60% of teen girls suffer from very severe anxiety or depression, 30% in the last year have considered suicidal thoughts, so that's that's alarming statistic. Not only for the depths of suffering of those girls, and 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 it's lesser for boys, but it's still rising for boys as well. But also behind every one of those girls or boys, of course, is a parent who is the parent of an anxious child. And if you're a parent, you know that being the parent of an anxious child, if you're at all aware, if you're at all facing the your own signal means you're anxious. And so you have in the, all of these families parental anxiety with ch- childhood anxiety. And so if, if we don't have the correct way to think and respond to anxiety, we're going to get into this horrible case where everybody's anxieties is paying off of each other in unknown and unnamed ways. And I know as a parent, when my child is anxious, it's actually activating that, ch- that anxious self in me like the anxious child in me is getting activated and this is sort of just how parenting works our our children kind of reactivate kind of our own sort of childhood experiences and because my childhood was raised in this Chinese American culture that really both shamed anxiety and tried to suppress it and say, Why are you so anxious? Why are you so anxious? Would be the response and and want to make me not be anxious. That gets activated when my own kids are getting anxious. I want to problem solve it away. I want to make them not be anxious. And really the driving motivation there for me that I've had to come to r- realize, and this is part of another example of my own ang- spiritual growth through anxiety, is as I've paid attention to my own parental anxiety, I realize that, you know, it is, of course, some of it is concern for my kids, but a lot of it is I want to I want to quiet and suppress my own inner anxiety, and so, hmm. and so when I go into this problem solving mode, when I'm trying to actually kind of make them feel less anxious by making it the problem go away for them, I'm actually acting quite self centeredly, and my kids actually pick that up. They subconsciously realize, hey, this is no longer about me. This is something something else. They quite can't name it exactly, but the term that we've named in the Chang household is it's when Curtis, dad, becomes consultant dad. Uh, And that's when I just, I'm I'm in consultant mode with my kids, and I'm just trying to solve their problems. And I'm not Mm. actually making room for them. I'm not actually being present Mm. to their true Mm. selves, because I'm actually Mm. treating them like a consultant, like a problem to solve. And so Mm. I've had to learn, the spiritual growth for me there has been to move from what I call consultant dad to grieving dad.
0: And grieving mm-hmm. dad mm-hmm. is just
1: somebody mm-hmm. that makes room for my kids' pain and grief. And mm-hmm. rather than switching to problem-solving mo- mode, I'm just trying to suffer with them and be with them in their pain. So that's one example, I think, of how we move towards others in embodied fashion, which is sometimes rather than intellectually solving a problem, it is patting them on the shoulder. It is giving them a hug. It is nodding and showing physical symptoms, physical expressions of sympathy. And that That is what parents can offer their kids that no one else can offer is that deep parental unconditional acceptance that all of us, all children crave most deeply from their parents, especially, especially when they are anxious. Hmm. And so more than, and this is something that no medication, no therapist, no one else can offer that you as a parent of an anxious child, this is what you can offer them is you can offer them deep, unconditional acceptance. As you move towards them and make room for their suffering, their anxiety, not trying to make it go away for them, but actually being willing to be in it with them, with them, Mm -hmm. to accept them in it.
3: Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, we often talk to patients who talk with us about their the distress that they have about their children. And as we remind people that any human beings, anxiety, any distress, my distress is always, always ultimately about me my distress about my children is still always ultimately about me it's not only about me but it is always ultimately about me and so one of the reasons that we say that one of the most helpful you know the most the single most helpful thing that we can do to create secure attachment in our kids is for us as parents to make sure that we're taking care of our own story that we are making sense of our own story that we are responding to and resolving the anxiety about what's going on with me in order for us to then Be a, you know, create that space that Curtis is talking about for our children. So because our children can read, oh, I'm talking about all my stuff that's upsetting me and my dad's listening. And he seems to be okay with this. And what it trains our children to learn is that, oh, I can be okay with not being okay. But I have to learn that by having an experience in which my not being okay is being received and giving me the space then to work through that and discover I can be okay on the other side of this.
2: Curt and Curtis, this, this has been great. Just really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm
1: going to take uh, a last shameless plug and then a last word. So here's the last shameless plug as I, I think that we we a little evaded a little bit about why anxiety is rising so much and i think there is one factor which is the world is sending us anxious signals and we need to actually pay attention to those signals and make sense of it so i actually want to invite readers if the, the particular or listeners the if the particular anxiety they're feeling is about what's happening in the world to consider joining a conversation that we're having every week on the good faith podcast where we're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to actually look at the world and make sense of it, because I think until we do that, we will be vulnerable to the anxiety that the world sends us. So invite listeners, uh, the audience, to check out the Good Faith podcast. And then in terms of the last word, that is actually a word, is is very simple, is that if you're feeling anxious right now and you're like, this just feels like, why is this happening to me? I just want to give a personal word that there really is an opportunity for you i mm. in the mm. depths of mm. my anxiety myself
3: mm.
1: when i was suffering from a breakdown as a pastor i just felt utterly abandoned by god by others and and abandoned of hope and that was probably the most hopeless moment in my life that i remember was mm. when i was in the depths of that an- anxious breakdown and yet here i am 15 years later and i'm with kurt thompson and you and talking to 2500 people about anxiety and offering uh, I, what I believe is a redemptive opportunity here. Mm, mm. Let my example be just a little sign of hope that re- deep mm. redemption is possible. Not only possible it is promised by mm. God. Mm. It's That promise is true in scripture. I am a living embodiment of that, and I invite you to lean into that opportunity.
3: Mm. I would say, well, first of all, I'm just so grateful to have had the chance to be with you again, Cherie, and with Curtis. And I just want to say to all of our listeners that Jesus is not worried. And I don't say that flippantly. I say that he's not worried because he's too busy working on our behalf. And his longing is for us to have embodied connection with others, to remind us that he and we can be present and hover with each other, looking for those places where our anxiety rests in order for that to become the very space where beauty and goodness can be created and not where our lives will become catastrophic.
2: Kurt and Curtis, thank you so much. Thank you to all of you for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.